for all the single children in, in China, the reality is you have two parents and four grandparents in the more fortunate families. And those lives you have to take some responsibility for. And there's no, I guess, sibling to share that bond with you. So that's something that collectively we're all coping with. This week's guest is Izzy Nyo, host of Loud Murmurs, a Chinese language podcast which discusses Western movies and TV. She also works at Quartz on their Because China web series. We touch on the promise and peril of publishing sensitive Chinese language podcasts on the mainland, the documentaries One Child Nation and American Factory, the Chinese response to the farewell, the experience of studying and traveling abroad as a Chinese national, and African swine fever. Izzy and today's co-host Athena Cao share some heartfelt reflections about their childhoods in China as well as the tensions inherent in cross-cultural living. If you're feeling particularly generous, there's a link to my Patreon in the description. I'm full-time freelance now, so any support would be greatly appreciated. Izzy, welcome to China Econ Talk. Happy to be here. So let's start off by talking a little about your podcast. How did you first uh, get doing it? You were mentioning before the show that initially it was just therapy for you. Yeah, totally. Um, it's basically just me and a group of friends getting together to talk about the TV and the movies that we watch so we don't feel too guilty about watching them. After I found my other three co-hosts, it became very clear that it's going to be a very, very female kind of show where we prioritized women's perspective. Yeah, so that's what it turned into. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. So how has it how has it grown over time? Were there any uh, particular like like jumps in, in traffic? And maybe talk a little bit about the, the domestic versus uh, international platforms that you guys are currently on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we didn't think that the podcast is going to be sensitive. So we were going to release it definitely like, you know, on the Chinese podcasting platforms as well as uh, uh, the U.S. ones. Um, but, uh, we started out by talking about China's Me Too movement. Uh, that gave us a little bit of a bump in traffic. Um, and then what really, uh, the, the big, one of the biggest things that happened to the podcast was that we did an episode on, uh, One Child Nation by Wang Nanfu and Zhang Jialing. Uh, and that episode, I think, just went viral. We had over 30K listens on the Chinese platforms uh, altogether. And then we started to see some episodes getting deleted, not just this one, but the previous ones that are kind of about politics. Um, like when we talked about the movie Vice and uh, Death of Stalin, um, basically any movie that cannot exist in China, when we talk about them, they tend to disappear from the Chinese platforms pretty fast. But um, with sure. One Child Nation, it was, wasn't just deleting the episodes. It's overnight we woke up and realized Wait, our show's gone. <laughs> and so we packed up everything <laughs> and went to a different platform that invited us to go. Um, so there you see this interesting push and pull, you know, like the platforms, their business development team really wants to get new content on their platform. And so they're inviting people like us. And then once we're there, they try to keep us for as long as possible. And then when, when we released an episode about One Child Nation and when it got super popular, they decide they can't keep us anymore. So we got deleted from the second platform. Um, so then we realized really we can't find a home inside the Chinese firewall, but we still have so many audience members, so many listeners on the other side of the wall. So we like, you know, eventually figured out a temporary solution or it's not so temporary. It just requires you to know how to 
do the RSS feed thing. Um, so that's where we are. So it, it's funny because on the one hand, like, you know, there's a tension with all these content platforms and it's sort of the same thing that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you see, you see Facebook and, and, and Twitter doing where on the one hand, you know, they like the viral content, but um, when it touches certain lines, then there are like other equities that come into play. Yeah. Yeah. We still don't know who asked them to delete us or, you know, we don't really know how it works, but it, what it taught us is like, it's very mundane. It's not a, you know, heroic struggle or anything. It's really if you make content in Chinese and you're trying to do something original, then you will run into censorship and it's kind of on us to figure out how to survive because what else can you do, right? Did the platform communicate with you at all before they took your show down or it was just you wake up one day and it's gone? One of them did. Uh, There's one that actually really tried very hard to tell us, hey, do you guys mind not talking about this and that or we're going to delete some of the episodes? And then I think after a few warnings and when we decided we're not going to censor the show for them, um, they took us down. So and the other one just deleted us without any warning. So the one that gave you some kind of hint, what were the hints? Like, what particularly did they not want to see? Or did they blame it on the party or anyone else? Or was it just platform policies? No, it's very vague. It's it's very vague. I think they weren't even supposed to tell us any specifics huh. or even give us warnings because we kind of established a relationship with the people who have, uh, in the, in the, at the very beginning invited yeah. us on. So um, they, they gave us a little bit more information, which we appreciate, but we were not going to stop doing episodes that are considered sensitive. And we honestly just don't know what's sensitive anymore. So <laughs> we had a meeting uh, internally and decided we're just going to do the same thing um, for both our audience inside and outside of the firewall. Hmm. And I think that's what makes a lot members popular. The biggest thing that the, like the most common thing that I hear from listeners who are living in China is I can't believe you guys are talking about this and I can't find the similar content anywhere else. So yeah, that's how Jordan and I f- feel when we, uh, when we first discovered your show and we kept on listening <laughs> to more episodes and we're yeah. like, wow, can't believe this content really exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember in high school, I was interning at um, Phoenix, the news website. Back then it was, and there's definitely a list of words that's not supposed to show up in the headlines. And the authority make it really clear to even to interns like me at the time, they make sure you know the eight words. It sounds wow. like there's a shift of regulation now that they don't even tell you what words are sensitive or what exactly touches a lot. Yeah, 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 they don't. And it's very vague. And I, we still don't know whether it's the platform self-censoring or uh, someone else telling them to pull us pull us down. So just all of it is uh, you have to guess. Have you received any feedback from just average audience who say you're offending me or I don't like your content or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we, we do. We have some trolls who are very loyal, very consistent. Um, <laughs> the One Child Policy episode especially is very interesting. It triggered a really big uh, oh. discussion where there are feminists or they claim to be feminists who say One Child Policy is the best thing that happened to Chinese women and how can you, you know, attack it or... Uh, uh, and that was that was very interesting. We, we did not expect people who to who who claim to be feminists to make that argument. Yeah. On that yeah. note, um, could you tell us more about your co-hosts? Because it it sounded like they come from a background. They come from they come from a very niche background of um, both 
Chinese and American upbringings, or at least some college experience, as well mm-hmm. as professional journalism experience on uh, both sides of the pond. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, we just sort of found each other. We actually started out by doing a different podcast about U.S. politics in Mandarin Chinese, where we're just all guests on that show, and that's how we uh, got to know each other. And uh, all of us are bilingual, and uh, we grew up in China and now live and work in the U.S., so yeah, very actually very similar backgrounds. Um, we try to invite um, invite over guests who have slightly different opinions than us. Otherwise, it's just gonna be like you know that Spider Man pointing at each other. Oh, you think that way? <laughs> I think that way. Everybody agrees. Yay! So. <laughs> Until someone writes you and be like, "This is wrong." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. And are they comfortable just talking? You know their honest opinions on. This show that's available both in China and in the states. Well, clearly, well, the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that before before the before we were taken down from the platforms, like I said, we didn't even expect people to listen to the show, and now we're a little bit more <laughs> aware of uh, just how many people inside China are listening. And uh, but it hasn't wow. changed really the atmosphere of our chat because we are friends in real right. life, and when you get together with your friends, you just talk very freely. And it is an outlet for um, the the other three who aren't uh, doing sort of like you know uh, content creating jobs. Uh, right, day jobs right. aren't related to this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just concerned. You know, yeah. if their families comfortable with you know them being out there, and especially after your show's been taken down, like. I don't know. Maybe someone would fear retribution. Yeah, we we sort of talked about that in the holiday episode, and then we had to take the whole discussion out because no one really, no one who, <laughs> no one can understand what we're talking about. This sort of anxiety and the political depression that we cope by doing the podcast. <laughs> so it's all linked together, and wow. um, I don't think we have very well informed answers to that question yet. That's that's the honest answer. Right. Wow. That's amazing. So. Do you think most of your audience also feel that anxiety? I think so. Yeah, we actually get a lot of uh, letters from our listeners. A lot of them are students in China. They, they don't know what to do after reading the news. It's uh, similar, very similar to the kind of political depression people feel here in the U.S. Actually, but you know, obviously, what you can do is is a much harder question to answer when you live in China. So we do get a lot of those letters, and uh, we we can and what we can tell them is just. Uh, we feel the same way, and we're finding small opportunities to to sort of stand up when we can. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, you know One Child Nation and uh, why it resonated so much with you. Unfortunately, uh, last night the Oscars came out, and uh, this nor yeah. um, the farewell was nominated for anything. But um, what what do you think? What do you what do you think in particular that documentary um, did so much, and and how did it sort of uh, reframe the way you you thought about your upbringing? Yeah, I think that it's a really wonderful documentary in that it really married a personal story to this big, you know, policy that made profound changes to generations of people in China. And the most important thing is that it came out right uh, when China was moving on from one child policy. And so this serves as a way for people to to kind of talk about that collective memory that we don't talk about in daily life. Before I watched that documentary, I didn't realize that I'd never really had a conversation with my mom about why I'm the only child in the family. And you hear bits and pieces of conversations with female relatives about, oh, you know, I had I had twins, but I had to get rid of them. It just, you know, comments like that, they're casual. So I didn't understand the gravity of it. 
um, until maybe I came until after I came to the U.S. and learned about it in textbook. But still, that feels like a very distant thing. And watching Nan Fu, who's pretty much my age, go through this personal journey to go to her hometown, talk to her relatives about what happened to the girls in the family. That just I just didn't know. I just didn't know about any of that. And and of course, like I realized, and all my co-hosts were reflecting on this in the in the show. That we were all born in cities, in urban families, and our experience was very different from Nanfu's experience. And in a way, we're、um, beneficiaries of the policy, and that's kind of a hard thing to confront. But it is very true. If you're born in the city, as as the only girl, you sort of you get all the attention and all the educational resources, and and that's the reason why we can be here, living in the U.S.、Um, and getting educations in the U.S. But、uh, for a girl who was born in rural areas,、uh, the families could be having more children until they have a boy, or you know, sacrifice the girl's future for the boy's, like in Nanfu's case. So yeah, we had to we had to think we had to think about that how we benefited from the policy more than maybe any other group in the country. It is indeed unfortunate that the one-child policy also couples with the gender inequality in China. Um, but I think there's something to be said for the guys who were born in that era too, because I feel like as a per- as as a single child, there's a lot about sharing and friendship and keeping each other company and a lot of like emotional development stuff that we missed because we never went、mm-hmm. through this the big family environment、um, or had people. Had peers close to us when we were growing up who can share, you know,、um, the silly things or、mm-hmm. the lessons or just to make you feel less lonely.、Um, and the other thing、yeah. is, for all the single children in, in China, the reality is you have two parents and four grandparents in the more fortunate families, and those lives you have to you have to take some. Responsibility for, and there's no, I guess, sibling to share that bond with you. So that's something、yeah. that collectively we're all coping with. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's still surprising how little、uh, we talk to our parents about this.、Uh, at least in my case, I never had the conversation, and they didn't feel the need to have that conversation with me.、Um, and again, like I want to talk about like the rural-urban divide. For for my mother's generation, it's definitely still a very traumatic thing that happened to many of them and and to their bodies. But the key difference is if you live in the city in a pretty well-off family, you have your one child, and then you can go on to pursue your career and studies. You're you're kind of sort of liberated from this duty of keep of reproduction. And、right. so that's that's my case. My mother went on to get her master's PhD after giving birth to me. And with the help of two grandmothers, you know, no one else to care for, and so they just、right. devoted all their attention to me. Yeah, that would not be possible if、uh, if she had to keep on having more children. So I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was born when my mother was pursuing pursuing a PhD, and I don't know. Perhaps if she were to have another children, she might have to postpone her her career, which wouldn't be fair to her.、Um, but I think that's a choice that it's. Ultimately, up to her to make.、Um, it it shouldn't、exactly. be like、yeah. a right that you're just、yeah. 
not allowed half. But anyway, my yeah. my aunt actually had to go through three abortions to finally have a son because like I'm oh. a girl and like all my cousins on my paternal side except for that aunt then son um are all children are all <laughs> women and my grandparents yeah. Yeah. couldn't deal with it so they kind of forced <laughs> the the youngest aunt they to, have to, to go through down that. the family name <laughs> exactly exactly oh, no. um so that was quite tragic yeah. um i think even to this yeah. day she holds grudges um against my grandparents for making her do that um yeah 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 so well, should we go on to some happier content? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another movie that didn't win an Oscar, uh, The Farewell, which we saw in uh, in in theaters in China a few days ago. This was in you know San Wenqiao and San Yuanqiao and Chaoyang, um, which is probably like mm-hmm. the most friendly possible neighborhood in China for such a thing, and it was like reasonably full. But apparently, yeah. this movie has been doing really terribly at the box office in. Um, in uh in in the mainland and without an oscar nomination they're not going to get like a big boost or anything but uh, i think the mm-hmm. the sort of like doban reaction um and the that that you see to the movie has been really fascinating um izzy do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about the sort of difference in the response from uh, american and chinese audiences yeah i was surprised that a lot of chinese audience uh, didn't like the movie. I went with a group of Chinese friends who are living in the U.S. and we all loved it. I think we probably a lot of us left the theater feeling dehydrated from like crying so much. But <laughs> but I think it's like the difference of um, uh, one argument I don't agree with Doban reviews is that the discussion, the whole discussion about how accurate the movie was uh, portraying 1990s China. I, I find that whole discussion to be pretty boring, honestly. Like Lulu Wang wanted to portray the hometown from her perspective. And she's someone who's both familiar and not familiar with China, both an insider and an outsider. So it's the China through her eyes, and that's the accurate part. And so I, I just don't think people would ask if Jia Zhangke's China is an accurate China, or is it at times feeling like a bit more like magical realism. So why does it matter that Lulu Wang's China is this, this, and it doesn't match with your exact memory? I think that's, first of all, it should not be a reason to dislike movie. But I think Crazy Rich Asians was some something that excited the Asian American community here. But it's not really a, a, a story about <laughs> real people, honestly. And this is one about a real family based on a real story. And you can just feel a lot of the universal themes in it. That, that, sure. um, and, and so I think it does. They did a lot to the uh, Asian, especially Chinese community here. And having Aquafina represent being the first Chinese American woman to win the Golden Globes. So that, that was a really, really big deal. But to Chinese people who do not lack representation of Chinese people on the big screen, it's just not as big of a deal, first of all. And also, it's, it could be strange to look at yourself through someone else's lens. And that lens is both familiar and not familiar to you. I think it just, the movie just felt weird to people, just like Billy herself will seem, come off as weird to a lot of Chinese people. So I think that's understandable. But I, I kind yeah. of feel like there's an anger that's not warranted 
I don't know how, how you guys feel about that. Okay, I think another thread running through the, the criticism on Doban is this idea of like China being portrayed poorly, which is really interesting because on the one hand, it's like the, the kind of difference in values. I don't think it, there's there's much of a, uh, you know, the Westerners are better like the, the Chinese or like the Chinese uh, have a better way of doing things. I think she played that really, really uh, straight down the middle. Um, but, you know, on the, mm. on the other hand, I can kind of sort of see like, okay, you know, they show the scene with the... Um, uh, with the prostitutes and you know the rundown restaurant and whatnot, and and I could I, I sort of understand if Chinese uh, if Chinese nationals are going to think that like this is the only way that Westerners are going to see them, um, you know it's 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 mm-hmm. it's never like a really fun feeling having another. Uh, another nation criticize you. I don't know. Like when I see like Wolf Warrior yeah. two and the American bad guys, I kind of <laughs> laugh at it. Um, but I think there's, I think there's just like a, a, a like a higher sensitivity to these things, um, warranted or not. Uh, that that runs through a lot of uh, a, a lot of Chinese culture. Were there prostitutes? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I don't remember yeah. that actually. You don't remember this? Isn't no, that this one scene? The uh, guy with a bunch of women. Yeah, in the hotel where, and he's like, he's like, yeah, the same room as last night, and there's like two older men, like kind of like smiling. Oh. And- oh, it it did not click in my head that there were prostitutes. There yeah, were same. Pro- <laughs> you need to be in the south more. <laughs> this is in Changchun. <laughs> you need Anyways. to be outside of Beijing more. <laughs> Oh my god. Another interesting aspect of this is just like how the Chinese, you know, how it it doesn't I don't know how much how many like mainland Chinese movies you watch nowadays, Izzy, but just mm-hmm. like the 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 story beats are very um, you know, don't really line up with what a domestic audience is, would, would expect for like a family drama. The director said that um, in an interview, quote, we we sought Chinese investors before they suggested we cynicize the movie, making the female protagonist West, less westernized or getting her a boyfriend or getting a more pretty actress, <laughs> actress to play her. Um, but the farewells female protagonist and Billy is based on my own story. If we wanted to make it more Chinese or get Angela baby to play her, it would no longer be Wong's life. So I think the, you know, the real <laughs> commitment she had to like playing it down the middle, uh, uh, on the one yeah. hand, you know, makes it an indie hit in the U S making $20 million or whatever. But, um, you mm-hmm. know, there's always this tension in Hollywood of like, if, and how to make things appeal to a Chinese audience. And, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating that like the one story that like most tells a Chinese American experience, people are just not really up mm-hmm. for. Yeah. But can you imagine having Angela baby play Billy though? <laughs> she she would have killed it. She's like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. She pioneered the method of Photoshop acting. She was just literally acting in front of a, a green screen and get Photoshop into the TV show. That's what she's known for. So no, please no. I, I love Aquafina. I think she did really, really well. And okay. I'm pissed that she wasn't nominated by the Oscars. Uh, American Factory, the one movie uh, about US and China that did get an Oscar nomination. Uh, what what are yes. what are your reflections uh, thinking about this show uh, or thinking about this documentary a few months after? What, what what lingered with you about it? What lingered with me the most is how rare this move this documentary is. It's you know, it was made at a time when US China relation was you can argue at its best or before the free fall that we're seeing now and and, you know the deal that happened then maybe would not have happened or would have taken a lot longer to get past if and you know so it captured a snapshot of when that relation was great and also now that it's released in 2019 when things look very different 
how positively the the documentary was received both in China and the U.S. was also a very rare thing. So that I just I just think it's you know it's 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 incredibly rare that the documentary even got to be made and it's received so well when nobody can seem to agree on anything. And, and I think it speaks to the fact that the directors worked with a Chinese team to get access to the workers to try to get their stories out. But um, I definitely think that they could have spent a bit more time with the Chinese factory workers. I, I just think that they're not trying to make a value judgment of who is more correct. And they're just trying to show that this is what how things are. And if you understand China a bit better, you can sort of answer those questions of why are the workers so young? Why are they so disciplined? Uh, why are, you know, and then if you understand the U.S. really well, you understand the struggles of the union and then why the, the workers are, a lot of them are, you know, unemployed in near retirement. From my end, I thought that I agree with you that the part that it that it that it whiffed on a little bit was the Chinese side. You get a sense of the of the worker conditions, you know, with with the like the brother who runs the quote unquote labor union. Um, but, you know, there is a real like there are worker protests that happen in China and yeah. it would have been, uh, it, it, you know, it, that ends up turning into a different documentary. Right. But I think there are two things that I think it missed. I think first, like you don't quite get to see the other options um, or lack thereof mm. that the uh, that the Chinese workers have, which is the reason why they take jobs where they have to sort glass with their um, with with bare hands and whatnot. And then just a way to see Chinese workers actually like having a bit of agency, even if that's through a title screen, I, I think would have added some context because like not everyone who watches uh, American Factory is also a China Econ Talk listener and, uh, you know, has yeah. a has a uh, has like a, a reasonably uh, 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 feng fu like understanding of what exactly exactly mm-hmm. um is 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 mm-hmm. is going on in situations like that i think the the crew the um they were limited by how much time they got to st- stay in china and spend in china with the workers but if you come away if you're you know just someone who doesn't really understand china and, w- and watches the documentary if you come away thinking that oh the chinese are so much more hard working they're somehow just really collective thinking that would be a very shallow take and not an accurate take either so yeah i agree with you yeah i don't know if the, i don't know if the documentary i want to see ends up getting made but um i do think that the uh <laughs> that the the reception in china domestically was really interesting because it was not released like mm. it's not on like tungsten shirpin or whatever but as as yeah. soon as it came out on netflix like there were thousands and thousands of articles on wechat discussing it like huge long reviews yep, on doban yep. <laughs> um yeah. which is which is not what you saw for one child nation uh, which which is is mm. a much diff- more difficult find on the on the chinese internet yeah yeah i think somehow because i think that just the lack of making value judgment it makes people in china feel they're they're you know they, they're not watching the documentary to judge it or to feel whether i'm offended or not it, it's just you can look at what's happening and feel yeah i i, I just thought it's it's made with a lot of empathy it's clearly that the, it's clear that the directors feel for the workers on both sides. It's different that the workers didn't end up unionizing in the American factory. And unionizing is a thought that's more foreign to an average Chinese audience than, you know, just having a relative who's moved to the U.S. and saying the U.S. is good. 
So I think on that front, it's it's easier for the Chinese audience to accept American Factory than accepting Farewell. And and yeah. for for Oscar to nominate American Factory over, I'm not sure if it's a quota that they're like substituting each other, but I personally think Farewell deserves more than the American Factory because I think from a from a storytelling perspective, American Factory represents more of a tree than the forest. It doesn't give us a sense of how common these factories really exist in America, like how they're doing in general. It's kind of just like a one-off story that might serve as a seed for someone to dig deeper. But I, I really think Farewell touched so on something deeper than that. And it's it's so common and it resonates so much with people who have similar experience or, or people who have observed, observed people um, in their family go through that transition. So that's just my two cents. Yeah, Izzy, if you if you had to pick one for an Oscar nomination, what would it be? Of our of our three. Oh, that's today. so hard. That is really really difficult. Out of the three, One Child Nation, The Farewell, and American yeah. Factory, I think I'll pick One Child Nation. Well, full disclosure, we haven't watched that one yet. <laughs> I don't know how people find it. I, like a lot of our listeners, they 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 kind of are following the shows we're watching here on Netflix, but I just turn on the TV and I don't know how they get those TV shows and, and movies, but they do. They follow along pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll pick One Child Nation. Athena, tell about that thing on Baidu Yoon from yesterday. So in case you're curious about intellectual property protection in China, um, I'm sure people <laughs> from all over China are doing a lot to strengthen IP protection, but the existence of Baiduyun really um, breaks down a lot of barriers, especially coupling with WeChat, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. one-on-one conversations are less censored. So if you find a source on WeChat that says they have the content that you're looking for, you add that person, that person will add you on Baiduyun and that person will share you something mm-hmm. that's kind of a seed and then you can like open that eventually. It's it's a lot of jumping through hoops, but um, you'll get there. <laughs> yeah, It's not that hard. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? The moral, like how do you, is this ethical? Is this moral when there's censorship? So it's very hard to say. Izzy, do you listen to any other Chinese language podcasts? I have to say I don't listen to that many, but I do know a couple of good ones. I uh, can recommend this one called Shengdong Jixi. It's by a bunch of uh, correspondents who are Chinese who live in the U.S. And it's more newsy. It's more topical. I, I want to say it's closer to like the equivalence of a Chinese version of China Econ Talk. <laughs> so maybe you want to check it out. So um, so my uh, uh, favorite, which has um, gotten a little bit of press coverage in the West, is called Gusher FM. Mm-hmm. And it is this uh, Shanghai-based publisher... I don't even, it's not even a publisher. It's like a small group. They do, um, every week they put out three 30-minute episodes, which are sort of like The Moth, if people remember that show. Basically, they find um, people from all over China who uh, tell their own stories and uh, uh, a life experience, something dramatic that happened to them, a family history. Um, a few mm-hmm. that stuck out to me of late, there was a, um, a student student 
uh, or, or a young person who's teaching in a really small town and has just been really depressed at the kind of state of the the village children. There was a, a little more uh, encouraging one about uh, a person who wanted to become a stand-up comedian. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it, it tells stories in a way that doesn't get banned on the Chinese <laughs> platforms. I think because it's just, you know, it's just people talking about their lives. It's sort of like the six-tone strategy, if people have been to that website website before um, where, mm, you know, they're not yeah. talking necessarily about like government policies or like leaders, but more just like what people experience. So you end up kind of dipping towards uh, relatively sensitive issues, but um, not in a way that um, gets anyone in trouble, to my knowledge. Um, and just as someone who lives in a bit of a, a, a Beijing bubble and um, most of the people I interact with mm. are, you know, in the 0.1% of uh, Chinese society, the this show does a, a really good job of kind of getting out into the provinces and, and, and giving people who don't necessarily have a voice really anywhere on big platforms to uh, tell their story in a long form format. You know, this isn't like like your Quasho 30 second video of uh, you doing something funny in the village like you know like making you know, having like showing off your um you know pull-up skills or something um it's people talking about like the 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 struggles in their lives and you know sometimes the accents can be a little tricky for people who don't have like super fluent chinese but i really encourage uh folks to listen to that if they're um, comfortable enough with mandarin so Izzy, aside from doing your podcast, which one day will become, uh, well, you'll have enough Patreon uh, uh, su- uh, supporters to, to to do full time. I am confident of. But uh, in the meantime, oh. you you have you have <laughs> basically the coolest day job ever in this because China series on Quartz. Uh, they fly you around the world making like really well produced videos. First off, like how can I get a job doing that? Are you like looking for interns? I will fly coach. Oh my god. <laughs> we already fly coach. Um, I still can't believe course oh, no. that we do that. Really, I, that's 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 true. <laughs> I think um, we. So, um, what? No, I was just gonna say that we're down to two producers, so we are actually looking for more people. <laughs> well, should yeah. they reach out to you on Twitter? This is um, I'm I'm gonna get a ten percent of their first years of uh, income if they if they come referred through the China Econ Talk thing. So. <laughs> Anyways, hit hit Izzy up with some uh some 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 of your past short form documentaries. Uh but uh let's 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 talk through briefly some of the uh the, the, the topics you covered that resonated with me. So first off, um Chinese tourism, which is something that is blowing up. Mm-hmm. Um 10% of Chinese have passports versus 40% of Americans, but every year 150 million Chinese nationals go abroad. You in your video make it clear that it's not all, you know, tour buses and middle-aged people anymore, but Chinese tourists are getting more um, adventurous. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. you know, what you think this rise in tourism and these really means from a political perspective? Like, can a, you know, 10 days running around Paris or um, the Bay Area expose people to new things to make them uh, think about the world in in different ways? I think it allows a very large group of Chinese people to think about themselves in a different way. Mm. In a 10-day trip, you probably won't really understand the history of a place, especially if you spend a lot of time shopping. Uh, but <laughs> they can get a glimpse of what people think of them. You know, like that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think like it's really fascinating to people what other people think of them. By going abroad, you can actually get that answer 
yourself. But I think a lot of people probably will. Re- it'll reinforce their idea of being a 大国人民 Like China is now so rich. Look, we can afford all of these things. So I don't know what kind of political implication that has. But I think that's the reason why it's it's encouraged to go abroad. You know, it's it's. I sometimes hear people say, "Why does China allow its citizens to go abroad to get exposed to new ideas?" Because I think really you you that's very limited. It's more. They feel really good about being Chinese when they're outside.、Uh, last week's episode, we had、uh, Wei Jianshan, who was one of the very first people to come over after the uh, uh, Cultural Revolution for for study in America,、mm-hmm. and you know his experience of going from planting potatoes in the Gobi, studying in you know <laughs> early 1970s Beijing, which was not the most posh experience, to、uh, showing up in、right. San Francisco and the grocery stores are full and everyone and no one is skinny. And you know that is、yeah. a very different experience from Chinese tourists now coming to New York City and being like, "Man, your guys' subway is such a piece of crap." So exactly,、uh, <laughs> it's interesting how、uh, you know, especially if you're from a、uh, in in a wealthy section of Chinese society, which obviously, if you're traveling abroad, you you are that seeing like the 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 difference. Not be particularly great between first-year Chinese cities and and Western ones is you know definitely I I, I, could, I could I agree with you Izzy I see I see it as giving like a bit of an ego boost yeah yeah and the other political implications that I mentioned briefly in the video is like you know the government still thinks of tourists as this you know occasional bargaining chip in diplomacy do you want our tourists to go there or not I can ban tour groups a、uh, group tours to your country if you if you decide to pick trouble or whatever that term is in Chinese、yeah. they did that to Korea at one point and Japan is very aware and Japan is definitely looking at Chinese tourists to be To make up almost half of their total tourist population in the next、uh, few decades. Yeah, and like with technology, the kind of nudging that the authority can impose on us is becoming more and more subtle.、Um, I am aware of at least、mm. one company. It's a really big company that serves the most affluent、um, group of tourists who go abroad and do road trips.、Um, so these are people who、mm. are. Educated, have some level of English, and are f- familiar with the Western style of sightseeing. So these are like the top of the top tourists, and this company is creating their own version of Google Map and showing these tourists routes to go, and just、yeah. like linking all the sightseeing places、um, wow. that's recommended to these tourists, and the government could easily just. You know, censor that map somehow, and make sure the tourists are going to where exactly the government wants us to go. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the、um, uh, you know the experience of a Chinese tourist、yeah. nowadays doesn't doesn't even necessarily mean that you're going to get、uh, you know access to a to a free internet when you're traveling abroad. Like Google Maps still won't work <laughs> as a Chinese national.、Um, so. Uh, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's like okay, like if you're a Chinese tourist, you're using Meituan to find the good restaurants. Right, yeah.、Um, but if you're still kind of in that like Chinese app bubble, like Athena was talking about、yeah. a second ago, you still end up, you know, not being totally on the、um, on the level. Though then again,、yeah. I mean, like how much is that really、yeah. different? Am I, you know, when I go to When you know Jordan Schneider takes his、um, uh, Concorde flight to France, like I'm still looking at restaurants in English, not in、um, uh, not in French. So、um, 
You know, this is a nice little segue into uh, your episode you did on uh, mm-hmm. Chinese students getting their education abroad in the West and how um, their experience being part of these big cohorts is very different from, um, you know, from mm-hmm. from 10, 15, 20 years ago where, you know, Chinese nationals were a, were a small international minority, just like um, other other international students studying. You want to talk a little bit about what your transition to um, to the U.S. was like and maybe how it potentially differs from the yeah, the yeah. Uh, experience of, 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 of younger students today? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that I actually had a very, very typical Chinese international student experience. Even though I went to high school in the U.S., my high school is very, very white in the suburb of Connecticut. So I was really starving. <laughs> to, to, I really wanted to make Chinese friends and want to talk to people in my native language. So when I went to a university. It's a, it's it's a large state university, just like the one I went to, and and um and uh, just like the one I went to in the video. Uh, university of Illinois is a state school. I went to a state school, so it was very much already like that. Uh, in my year, I think there were enough Chinese people, enough Chinese undergrads for you to never even step outside of that circle to, and you still won't feel lonely. There are your you have your own like CSSA. You have your own prom. They, they did a whole prom for Chinese kids because many of them never experienced the prom experience in the U.S. So, you know, so I, that was my experience. And it's very easy. You have to really make a you have to make an effort to not be completely separated from the rest of the campus. And I think that's really only gotten worse since my time, uh, because, like you said, there are more and more Chinese students in studying in the U.S. and a lot of them because of the visa restrictions, know that they probably won't be able to stay after four years. So, you know, why even try that hard to make yourself uncomfortable and go out and make friends with the rest of the student population? And it's definitely very different from back then when the few Chinese students who are studying abroad are sponsored by the government and they're the top, you know, the, the, the very best of their peers. Right now, there's still that reputation that a lot of international students have flashy sports cars and are only here because they can't deal with the pressure of Gaokao. There's a degree of truth in that. Uh, when I was in Illinois, in this you know tiny little city, Twin City, there are so many sports cars, and they pretty much all belong to international students from China or Korea. But the vast majority, I still think, are here to study and want to get a good job after to pay back their parents to, <laughs> for that really, really high tuition. And I want to also point out that a lot of the blame is put on Chinese international students, but I think the universities really did not understand just what it means to have such a huge influx of people from one country with one culture. The international student offices are often very, just completely not equipped to deal with it. So that in some cases, the CSSAs get to grow into huge organizations that are no longer able, they're no longer able to sort of manage the size of CSSAs and their activities. And I think that's the responsibility of the university as well, since these are your customers. These are the students you serve. <laughs> I totally understand your Connecticut experience because okay. I went to a really small Ibarra school. Um, <laughs> and in my class, there are four Chinese students, including myself. And when I call up my high school friends who are also in the States, I remember one guy who went to University of Southern California say, we have like 
five times your like Chinese students class in our school who are from Shanghai.、Um, that's not even their entire、um, Chinese students in, in in his class. So the experience is really different. I think like on the one hand, like as you said, like some schools、yeah. they're not taking、um, sufficient responsibility over the super influx of. One student body from one country, one culture.、Um, I think for other schools, like my school, really does a shitty job of just encouraging diversity、mm-hmm. and inclusiveness.、Mm-hmm. So you really can't win. Like, I don't think there's a magical number of percentage of students、um, who should be、mm-hmm. from one country at a particular school.、Yeah. Um, but what do you think, like? The trend、right. has been on the diversity and inclusiveness、yeah. um, in the student body、yeah. from you know your time compared to like your video time. My university was a state university in this,、um, in Wisconsin, so it was not very diverse. It was Chinese students and then students from the states in the Midwest. And so、mm-hmm. I think that's also a reason why there's such a barrier to integration or assimilation, whatever you want to call it. Is is there no? If you go to NYU, for example, you sure you can choose to only hang out with Nanjing and if you're from Nanjing, but you can also find so many different types of cultures that you might feel comfortable、um, understanding, like learning more about or curious about. But but in a in the case of going to a state school like that, the lack of diversity in the student body itself. Deters you from trying to go out of your own comfort zone. I think that's actually two issues that are connected.、Right. And going back to the point of like universities, they're pursuing students from China for their own revenue, and therefore I think they should do a better job at trying to integrate them. Right. And do you think st- Chinese students are in general like asking for? That sounds like a politically incorrect question, but what I meant to ask is. Um, <laughs> like, do they want to be integrated in the first place? That's a bad question. I, I don't know. I think、that. everyone wants to be integrated.、Mm, this I struggle with this question so much. I I know I know I know what you're trying to say though, Athena. I think I think it's like, do they what what do they want? Right? What what kind of ideal American college experience do they want? And is that even possible? Yeah, like it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure if this is unique to Chinese culture, but. I think at, at least my personal experience has been like when I leave China, like my family has this expectation of me learning more about other cultures, but they also have this expectation for me to stay Chinese,、mm-hmm. whatever that means. So it's really hard for like international、yeah. students yeah, yeah, from yeah. China to integrate the right amount. So you can't go native, but you、yeah. should also explore. So. I mean, there's like irrationalism in that expectation in itself, but like, I don't know what your experience been. Tell us more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I. Oh my God, yes, I have this relative. Every year, if he sees me, he will ask me the same question: Do you still have a Chinese heart? And I don't know、wow. what he means.、Um, of course, I have a. But、Chinese、what about、heart. a Chinese soul? <laughs> <laughs> I can't swap it out. Yeah. <laughs> See, he didn't know to ask that question. <laughs>、um, I I don't know. I think I I think it's very hard to when you're in America. You feel this 
you almost feel this defiance. You're like, okay, everybody thinks my country is, my government is, you know, authoritarian, and and I didn't know about any of that, and it could almost feel like a personal attack. And so many many people, including me, have to go through that journey of first、yeah. feeling like, why are you attacking me? And then, am I still proud of being Chinese? And at the end of the day, how do I still feel comfortable with myself and my identity? And At the same time, not internalize the racism that exists in America against people of color. So it's very complicated. I think four years is almost not enough to go through that journey. So we were talking earlier about traveling abroad, but still seeing the world like through the Chinese、uh, internet.、Uh, another one of the videos you made recently was about、uh, WeChat's impacts on elections abroad, and particularly in Australia. There's also been a, a fair amount of reporting about、uh, the impact of WeChat on、uh, Canadian elections, and I'm sure、uh, stuff will be coming up in 2020. Um, but I just I, I found it fascinating because there's like such a fantastic irony、um, that WeChat spends an incredible amount of energy domestically on censorship, but like can't be bothered、um, to do anything about uh, uh, fake news abroad. Yeah, yeah, it really shows you where their priority is, right? It's not a technological problem; it's really a motivation problem. Sure. They still censor discussions about Chinese politics overseas, though. Just to a lesser degree.、Um, yeah, I think you get you get like a a little bit of a different experience if you register on a foreign phone number versus a Chinese one. But you know, you still can't like necessarily、yeah. post whatever you want、um, if you're living in Australia, registered on an Australian phone. Yeah. yeah.、Um, so, are you worried? Are you、yeah. worried at all? And not just you know benign negli- negligence, a la Facebook, but like this.、Uh, but we tried actively being used abroad to p- push certain lines, not not nece- not necessarily just like kind of passively censoring certain content, but but pushing others. Yes and no. I I found no evidence that the government is already actively trying to like sow division, spread fake news, to mess up with other countries' internal politics, or pick favorites in the election. I haven't found any evidence of that. But、uh, they don't necessarily even need to do that. They can just simply act as a filter to only let certain kind of content pass through to reach the Chinese diaspora in that country. Like you know, the, the re- really critical the the views that are really critical of the Chinese government are not going to flourish as much on Gongzhonghao. And so naturally, as an editor, you're going to start not publishing too many articles with those views. So I think it's just really reducing the. The diversity of views and that alone is very harmful already. It's very, it's a very powerful tool for the government. I think if they choose to start using it in that way. So, is you also did a story about African swine fever, which I thought was、um, really wonderful. You showed up at this, you know, like this pig Dalaban who was crying to you, and you had like the dinner where you're drinking with him. I'm curious, was this like an easy thing for to get him to talk to you?、Um, he seems like a really brave person. Uh yeah, he is a fascinating figure. I always feel like his story needs to be someone should make a movie about Seriously. him. Seriously, he's such a rare kind of Chinese businessman. Yeah, he's gone to jail. You know, he's gone to prison. Seriously, oh my god! Still, he came back and he has this town named after him, and he's very outspoken. I I found him because I it was really hard to find any pig farmer to talk to me. And then I found him. <laughs> so t- t- why don't you tell his story? So he has this huge conglomerate, agriculture conglomerate, and the pig farming is only a part of it. But it's 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 part of the business that's really close to him because that's where he started. He started by raising pigs and chicken, and now he owns. You know, he's a he's a、uh, millionaire with his, this town named after himself, basically. And、uh, 
what happened is that uh, near last year, around Chunjie, around the Chinese lunar uh, lunar New Year, he started seeing that a lot of the pigs started dying, and there are rumors that this is this might be uh, ASF African swine fever, but no one would tell him whether it is the case. And China being China, you can't just go out and do a test on your own. You have to report it to the local government. The government is the only one who can, you know, give you that certificate that says, yes, you have ASF, and then it, it will kick off, you know, a bunch of uh, subsidies and, and things will uh, follow. But no one would do this test for him. So eventually he, uh, inc- he allowed his workers to put up these huge banners that say, the government give us a word. We need to know. We we need to know where to go from here. We think this is ASF. And they posted it on Weibo, which is a very, very bold thing to do. And the post wasn't censored for whatever reason. It went viral. People started saying, yeah, okay, check this out. Maybe it is ASF. If they're telling you to look into it, maybe you should look into it instead of turning a blind eye to say we're too afraid that this might be ASF, so we're just not going to look at it. And so, of course, it was. And then um, they had to kill all of their remaining pigs. Um, and that was the most traumatic experience to the, the staff there, including he, himself. And that's, that's the, that, that's, uh, that's the place where when they talked about the experience, both, uh, the Dalaoban himself, the boss himself and the uh, person in charge of the pig farming business, they were both just sobbing on camera. Um, because to them, killing pigs for profit when their life is when at the end of their life is is one thing, but killing them prematurely with the babies and all the the whole the getting the whole herd into yeah I don't want to be too graphical but but too graphic but they are they really fell for the animals and they are mm. also really angry at the local government for not doing anything. So that was I think it's 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 still it's rare for someone to be that candid on camera i think it really speaks to his personality that more than anything yeah it is not a common thing and then and then you know welcoming uh foreign journalists with cameras is 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 a whole another dimension yeah uh yeah i think i think that was my favorite but i didn't actually go there i i had uh help from inside the country to to film and produce i produced it remotely wait but weren't you wait weren't you sitting around the table when I, with when them? I, no 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 that was my producer oh. but when i saw the footage of the whole show i wish i could be there. i know <laughs> oh my god it looked really good China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the